Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome once again to the Need to Know podcast and going to talk about the situation in Xinjiang province, China today. And we have to help us with this, we have an old friend, Ray Zong, who is a program associate at the Wilson Center in the Kissinger Institute on China and U.S. She is an old friend because she has been on this show several times, so hopefully listeners will remember her. We also have Bradley Jardin, who is a research associate with the Kissinger Institute, and he's also the director of research at the Oxus Society. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Glad to be here. So, Ray, I want to start with you, since uh, you really raised this to my attention and said that we should do a podcast on this. So I appreciate that. I always appreciate our experts coming to us with some of those suggestions. Give us a lay of the land of what's been going on in Xinjiang. Uh, just uh, we, we know that it's kind of risen a little bit in the news recently, but this is a long running problem and challenge in China and Western China. Give us a, an overview, just the broad brush strokes of what's going on there. Okay, so uh, Xinjiang in, in China is known as the XUAR, Xinjiang Uyghur uh, Autonomous Region, and they have operated in a quote-unquote sort of, you know, semi-autonomous, quote-unquote, self-governing uh, mechanism, but overall, um, it it, like other peripheries in China, like Tibet and other minority regions, is overall the governance decisions are made by the Han majority um, Chinese Communist Party and its leadership. And so um, with starting around 2014 or so, we start seeing more tracking of activities by Uyghurs and other Central Asian Turkic minorities in the region. Um, and, and over the years, we've seen the construction of, you know, m larger and more elaborate law enforcement mechanisms, uh, incorporating um, Uyghur labor in these large open air camps that analysts have found using satellite research as this has been more become more prominent to other states like the United States, there's been pushback on the types of products produced by the the Xinjiang region. So this has included tomatoes for ketchup. It's also included cotton. Both of these types of goods were uh listed as sort of banned import products by Customs and Border Control uh, Protection this past January. We've also seen the introduction and reintroduction of the Uyghur Forced Labor Act. So this has gotten a lot of attention from American legislators. 
What makes this really interesting as a China research angle, though, is how much pushback we've seen from the Chinese state on this. This is an issue that they've signaled that they are not willing to budge on. Um, and we've seen a large PR campaign for uh, Xinjiang grown cotton from Chinese celebrities, from um, state spokespeople, so on and so forth. So the, the, the degree of sort of public support for government conduct and government policy decisions is is something that we're we're seeing China assert more and more. Yeah, I saw a piece recently that was talking about how China was inviting foreign media into Xinjiang and giving them tours of where the cotton manufacturing is going on, kind of highly curated and monitored tours for foreign media as a kind of a way to I think bring some noise to this issue area. I want to step back real quick just for a more fundamental question, and Bradley, maybe you can answer this for us, but just tell us who are the Uyghurs? I think this is a just you know a fundamental question, uh, but we shouldn't assume the knowledge of it that's out there. Uh, who is this group of people? Uh, the Uyghurs are a Turkic minority, um, predominantly Muslim, and they've, they're um, situated in the uh, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. So it's part of a very multi-ethnic um, Chinese state building in the early years of the Communist Party. We're really looking to advance their credentials. This was because across the border in the Soviet Union, there were ethnic republics being set up by the Soviet government uh, to promote these um, ideas of ethnic uh, republic states. So the Chinese um, state at the time tried to mimic this model of having the Uyghurs first and, and foremost um, in the state title. So that hence the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. The Uyghurs today, um, they're still the dominant group within the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, but their population is steadily declining because of a developmental model, uh, which scholars are calling a uh, colonial, colonial settler model, which is where you have China moving in Han uh, settlers into the region. Um, they're dominating a lot of the um, traditional industrial sectors in the, the region, uh, particularly in relation to the energy sector and the more high-paying, high-yield uh, industries, which leaves Uyghurs um, excluded a lot from the, the economic development in the region. Part of the problem with this, when we look at supply chains as well, is part of the settler colonial model that China has been advocating. It, it uses this paramilitary organization called the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps this group controls a vast um, agricultural space across um, the region, and it, particularly for cotton, accounts for something like 30% of Xinjiang's cotton yields, which has huge implications because Xinjiang accounts for something like 20% of the world's global cotton supplies. So the U.S. initially last December blocked uh, cotton supplies by the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps. Um, which hit the industry hard, but it did not go far enough. Thankfully, that's been corrected now where all cotton supplies are now being blocked from the U.S., which will make a huge difference in um, helping to give to cut down on the, the use of uh, coerced labor, uh, particularly in the, the cotton sector. Well, it doesn't seem like China's really listening to that. And of course, they get a move too. So what has their action been? Well, it's really China's model, as Ray mentioned at the beginning, really shifted in 2014. For the past 20, 20 years or so, China's really focused on 
the notion that in order to integrate the Uyghurs within um, broader Chinese state, it would develop the region economically. So it's a very de- developmental driven model um, of assimilation. But in 2014, what we saw from the, the Xinjiang papers that were leaked to the New York Times two years ago was that President Xi made this speech. We talked about the collapse of the Soviet Union, and he makes the interesting point in it that the harbingers basically of the collapse along national lines were the Baltic states, which were the most uh, economically developed sector of the Soviet Union. So what she was doing by mentioning that is he's basically saying that this idea of development alone is not enough to assimilate minority peoples. De- developing the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region is not enough. It doesn't go far enough to fully integrate it. And since then, since the making of that speech, there's been a hardline shift between, towards securitization. And this is what we've seen with the rise of um, these re-education centers, China also labels vocational training centers, in order, they, they argue that they're trying to integrate um, Uyghurs within the broader labor market. Often, uh, the Chinese state um, stereotypes Uyghurs, referring to them as idle or that they're they're unwilling to work. So a lot of this new policy that we're seeing um, is basically the Xinjiang indust- um, industrial aid program, which is where China's finding ways to create um, work opportunities in Xinjiang or have satellite factories set up across the, the broader mainland of China where Uyghur workers are sent to work. Now, the problem is when you actually look at these uh, factories, either through journalists who've tried to investigate in them, access is extremely limited, as you, as you pointed out. It's these uh, tours, they bring uh, media groups in, they're extremely curated, they're not really allowed to ask questions. There's a lot of um, incidents where they try to speak with outside people, outside the group, and you know they're stopped by the minders. So these are very heavily securitized as well. If you look at the factories themselves, they're surrounded by barbed wire fences and so on that we can see from satellite maps. So they're heavily militarized and it meets with the International Labor Organization's criteria for coerced labor where we're seeing surveillance of workers, tracking by minders, long working hours and conditions. So these enter the the broader supply chains because not only now bans locking items coming from Xinjiang is just not enough as well, because now this model is spreading to, to wider China too. Kind of like an ex-colonialization. Now they're moving them out of Xinjiang to do the work. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like Bradley said, uh, traveling in Xinjiang is, is not like it was in the past uh, for foreigners, out-of-province people. Uh, there are po- more and more police and security checkpoints that monitor traffic. And uh, I would add, in addition to other um, types of security measures, that passports for people in Xinjiang were confiscated fairly early into this securitization process, meaning that overseas travel was also limited. Um, from China's perspective, uh, as they've pushed back against criticism from the United States and European states is that, uh, to them, this is an issue of, uh, Chinese sovereignty and that this is a domestic issue that, um, other states should not try to necessarily contain. Um, also over the years, we've seen, um, the, in addition to this, this idea of, you know, they need to change the way that they work. Um, we've seen more and more cultural related 
monitoring. So um, how they practice religion for people that do practice um, religion, uh, the style of dress, um, their, their types of households. We've seen, I think, remodelings of traditional homes. And also there have been installations of cadres or bureaucrats, lower ranking government workers that have lived inside homes with Uyghur families. So you had these, uh, Han minders that effectively, um, sort of were, were, assigned to uh, live in the communities in Xinjiang. Well, this, of course, begs a larger question of what can well the world or more in particular, the United States and Congress and policymakers do about this problem? The uh, Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act was mentioned. Bradley, you mentioned that you didn't think that that went far enough. You know, we're we're recording this on April 29th, 2021. So this is one day after the president's speech to Congress, where human rights issues were not really addressed very much. Uh, but China was mentioned a lot, mostly as a foil and a way to sort of be a catalyst to get America's Americans interested in investing in America in order to and supporting Biden's plan in order to be a competition against China. So this wasn't really mentioned. So what could we really see from the United States on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I would make the case um, just to start with before addressing policy options, but just it's very important that the Xinjiang issue doesn't get brought into this um, US-China competitive dynamic. Because that's part of the problem is that the Chinese side um, instrumentalizes this narrative of saying that the U.S. only cares about the situation in Xinjiang because it's part of uh, an effort to kind of um, decouple the Chinese economy or cripple it economically in terms of its development. So I, I say right off the bat, it's important not to uh, bring it within a competitive lens in that sense. This is a very separate issue, and this is based on universal human rights. It's also based on policies widely accepted for stopping coerced labor and the global supply chains. In terms of policy options, I think some good work has been done. I think the blocking of cotton supplies was a, was a good move. Um, we've also had the forced Uyghur, um, we had the act basically to prevent um, coerced labor. The problem is it actually got watered down by uh, lobbyists uh, from, from Nike, Apple, Coca-Cola. So we've actually seen this pushback from uh, international companies that have work in Xinjiang, that have supply chains there, they're unwilling to engage in this process where they actually um, bring transparency to their, their supply chains, undermines their business, their profit incentives, and so on. So it's this difficulty of where the bill was basically warped down, where it had the prescription was to sell report, which uh, you know minimizes the um, penalties as well for bringing in goods. So it, w it didn't go far enough. But the bill has been reintroduced, actually, and is being debated again, which has full prescriptions calling for there can be blocks and items that don't prove that their supply chains are clean. So we bring more transparency. So that's kind of from the, the policy side, a lot can be done in that sense. The other side is um, basically advocacy worldwide. I've had problems where even some of the, the organizations, which are standard setting, have actually had members on the board from the Xinjiang Production Construction Corps. This, this has happened with some uh, textile advocacy groups, cotton advocacy groups. So we've seen where they're so enmeshed together that actually it, it's difficult to even um, 
advocate without it becoming politicized. But they have begun making efforts to decouple, and they are doing a lot of work um, pushing this forward. But the international community really needs to work for consumer boycotts, really pushing forward. And that's going to have a lot of problems for companies. Companies are going to feel pressure to speak out um, on the Xinjiang issue. But they will, there will be repercussions. I mean, we just saw with H&M in China, massive pushback with support from the government of a, a Buy Xinjiang cotton campaign, where we're now seeing China and the state mobilizing its, uh, its consumer base in order for, um, to promote state interests. Um, so this, this has created backlash. We've had H&M basically canceled off of major apps, um, e-commerce platforms, and it's really hit the business hard. So actually taking out a stance on Xinjiang will come with costs. And we need to be aware that costs will be there. But it's about doing the moral right thing, and which is getting rid of coerced labor from our, for our global supply chains um, in line with international law and in line with American law, for that matter. Right. And um, it, I would also say that, you know, at the heart of this matter is the well-being of Uyghurs, either ones that are still based in Xinjiang and other regions in China, but also ones that are abroad. And right now, what that means is this is also an immigration and refugee-related issue. Uh, we've seen more um, rhetoric, uh, such as in Denmark, where they are starting to consider sending refugees back. Um, We've we've had some issues with uh, paperwork processing for people in the Uyghur diaspora trying to um, claim sanctuary abroad, and so this is a this is a fair like on the scale of how much policy costs it. This is a relatively low one, but the difference between somebody who's trying to live abroad and somebody who is sent back to china at this time it's a it's a night and day experience um and you know a, a lot of times when you're looking at Uyghurs giving testimonies what they're asking for is usually um being able to you know have a, a place to safely stay and um, a means to get back in contact with family members that they haven't talked to in years. So um, I think those requests uh, should be listened to because they're made by the people who are most heavily impacted in all of this. Well, and Bradley, you mentioned this sort of compartmentalization, right? Separating the human rights issues from the larger great power competition or cyber interaction or trade and all these other things that we have with China. Politics doesn't do very well at that. We saw that with the JCPOA and Iran, right? Where there was a, they tried to have this transactional deal that was very compartmentalized. And these are the nuclear sanctions. These are the human rights sanctions. These are the things that deal with Iran supporting terrorist groups, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that didn't really work, right? It was a huge campaign issue and the compartmentalization never really worked. And we of course know that the policy must go through the politics. So knowing we have to go through that prism, tell us where you think things will go and what suggestions you may have on how we can deal with this challenge. I think the key is really to setting clear standards and clear um, universal standards. So uh, what I would use an example of a politicized one would be the, the blocking of um, politicized, but use an instrumental as well. 
um, the blocking of certain companies that were active in surveillance in Xinjiang. Some of these tech companies were highlighted um, by the Trump administration. And correctly so, for a lot of their actions within um, these gross human human rights violations and so on. But there were not clear standards set for which these policies could be expanded to other companies that were active, or where even some U.S. companies which supply components or have partnerships with some of these um, could not have been impacted as well. So I think that there's ways of shaping policy where we set clear standards um, that are not... They will get drawn to political discussion, of course, that's that's inevitable, key for that is tackling it through strong messaging um, and pushing forward the right ideas that do try to compartmentalize the issue, even if the political realities are always going to bring political dimension to this. I mean, we're even seeing this with other issues around uh, Xinjiang, where we have the, the Olympic Games coming up, the Winter Olympics, and, and discussions about boycotting the Olympics. Heavily politicized issue. And yet we have um, Chinese companies like Anta, which are now by that's the, the sports manufacturing company. They're now bringing in, uh, they're buying into this state-backed um, Beijing cotton campaign. So now the Olympic uniforms and other things will be supplied uh, using Xinjiang cotton. So it, there's already this kind of national backlash from the Chinese side where it's already the messaging in China is already clearly geared toward this competitive dynamic with, with the U.S. But the key is just to keep um, emphasizing the decompartmentalization and emphasizing the universality of this issue, that it's a human rights issue and it's building these stable coalitions with allies. I mean, we just saw this with the European Union, um, the US and other allies just put targeted sanctions on officials um, like with the Xinjiang Public Security Bureau and other um, institutions. So that's an example where we're working together with clearly established frameworks, especially with coerced labor. It's a well-defined concept that we really need to push China to ratify the treaty on and also push China to uphold its own constitutional values, um, which it is clearly not doing. Ray, I want to give you the last word on this. Um, you know, it seems like from our discussion here, there's a lot of policy options out there. Um, but as we also said, this isn't really a front burner U.S.-China relations issue right now. There's a lot of other things going on in the bilateral relationship. But it also seems like the pin could be pulled on this at any time and it will suddenly bubble up. So what do you see out there on the horizon? What do you think we should be watching for? Like Bradley just said, the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics will be uh, sort of this issue to watch. Naturally, there's a lot of concerns about holding uh, multinational sports events in a still serious COVID crisis. Um, but the spectacle of the events, the reluctance of the IOC to really make commitments uh, to hold certain values. Frankly, the IOC this cycle in Tokyo uh, are banning fist raising and political signs. So this is an indication of where the IOC stands as of right now. Um, but it will fall on different types of corporations to make political calls. Um, having said that, I just want to go back to your point on U.S.-China competition really, really briefly uh, and say that this is this is still something that the, the U.S. government as an actor still needs to be really careful of. Uh, why? Because China's concerns about foreign influence and containment of China 
often bounces back and uh, reflects on how it uses law enforcement uh, for, for people based in China. So we saw this really, really evidently in Hong Kong, where uh, 2014 era umbrella movement activists were um, you know, accused of not really being Chinese, receiving foreign money, um, so on and so forth. And so th- this sort of labeling of you know, dissatisfaction and dissent as, you know, foreign backed is, is something that can further crack down even on populations that are already, already fairly marginalized. And so if anything, the sort of care that the United States takes in sort of defining competition, whatever that is, if any reason, it should be for the sake of people that are most impacted by policy. Oh, with everything that's going on in the U.S.-China relationship, you know, this going on too, and and like I said, it might be a back burner issue now, but it could seems like it could be quickly moved to the front. And we're happy to have a Kissinger Institute that really helps us see over the horizon on some of these issues and uh, be available to policymakers to help understand and frame these options. So Bradley Jardin and Ray Zong, thanks so much for being with us. 